Good morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6? I'll be reading there in a minute. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts 6 on page 774. We are in the middle of our spring sermon series on the New Testament book of Acts. We're calling the series Jesus Part 2 because at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus has risen back into heaven to be at the Father's side. He's no longer with his people, but he's still at work directing not just the affairs of the church, but all of history. And the only way a bunch of sinful, common folk like you and like me and like these fishermen and other apostles and church leaders could possibly change the world is through the power of the Holy Spirit in every Christian. That theme has been scattered throughout all of these chapters. So far, everything we've read has happened in the city of Jerusalem, but that's going to change pretty quickly. And one of the causes of that change we'll see again in today's text. The apostles and now other church leaders are facing all kinds of opposition, mostly from the religious elite. And uh, if you wonder, well, what horrible crimes did they commit to merit that kind of persecution? The answer is they did horrible things like they healed the sick. They shared the good news that Jesus was risen from the dead. They attracted crowds that realized God was at work in and through them, and they wanted to know more. The new order is always threatening to the old establishment. Think Uber versus Taxi and Limousine Commission, right? Upending the way things have always been. Influence, wealth, status, all threatened by this new sect of Christ followers. Well, we'll pick up the narrative in chapter 6. Listen carefully. These are God's words. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. 
They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Pause. He proceeds to give his speech. It's a long speech. It's most of chapter 7. We're going to pick up right after he finishes. This is the effect. Verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, it is a miracle of your grace. It is a testimony to the power of resurrection to raise the dead that a story of persecution, a story of a a good man being stoned to death, and Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, standing there giving his approval. Only you could change this story from night into day. Only you, Lord God, to change this story from death into life. Show us again the power of the cross and of the empty tomb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things that uh, will guide us as an outline through these three chapters, or at least portions of three chapters. First, why deacons? Secondly, what the biblical story? And thirdly, who the ultimate diakonos? I'll explain what that means in a minute. Why deacons? Chapter 6 starts with an ethnic racial conflict. Racism has all kinds of gospel implications. It isn't just these super ugly scenes that we see of hatred and bigotry in the national news. Racism always starts with some element of cultural arrogance, not just skin color, not just language and ethnicity, but but very often some cultural behaviors, um, habits, ways of thinking, stylistic preferences that are given a spiritual significance that uh, we invest with moral of superiority and righteousness is defined by being like me, whatever me looks like in your world. Very often, insecurity is added to that self-righteousness because I need to look down on other people to look uh, to feel better about myself, and so I I look for differences to highlight and to disparage. 
I look for ways of thinking that are just dumb and uneducated and ignorant. And, I, and, and insecurity feeds that kind of um, superiority to look down on another just because of difference. Well, um, the opposite reaction to that ugly picture is no healthier to dismiss or ignore any distinctions of culture or race, to say, you know, none of it matters, we're all the same, we're, we're, we're all, um, uh, every cultural value is just as good as another. That's no better. The gospel does two things at one time. The gospel first leads us to recognize the depth of our sin and uh, help us to be properly critical of all cultures. Every people group, every ethnicity has inherent weaknesses, flaws, ways of thinking, habits that are not godly, not according to God's will. And um, at the same time, the gospel helps us remember that the Creator crafted all of us in His image. Every people group, ethnicity, race, skin color, somehow in a special way uniquely reflects the image of God. And together we get this picture of God's glorious creation. The gospel leads us to recognize that um, I have no right, I have no legitimacy to take pride in self, nor in self's culture. It is not better than another. I have so much to learn from other people, and then we can put aside superiority and learn and um, extend grace to put aside racism. Well, the apostles step in here with this racial-ethnic conflict and delegate the task of distributing the food equitably to the widows, the Grecian widows representing the Greek empire and the Jewish widows. Um, Widows in that culture especially were at the bottom of the totem pole, unable to care for themselves, unable to go out and and find a job, entirely dependent on other people's charity if their family wasn't around. And, And the charity source most likely in this situation was the church of Jesus Christ there were some disparities, apparently. And the elders, analogous to the apostles, uh, raised up the first diaconate. Diakonos is the Greek word that simply means servant. It could refer to a waiter, as in a restaurant, somebody who waited on tables. And so um, this is important. That the, the apostles are not saying that they are too important to do the menial work. They're not saying that their status is above that kind of, of um, figuring things out in logistics and food distribution. What they are saying very strongly in a positive way is that they have a high sense of calling to maintain in their God-given roles. Verse 2, they say, it would not be right to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to deacon tables, to wait on tables, to serve there are other primary responsibilities mentioned in verse 4, prayer. Um, let me give you an example, not, to, uh, not, not an apples to apples, but hopefully this will help. When I'm here in the office, I'm very often tempted to grab a screwdriver and climb up on a ladder and fix something uh, because I enjoy that. I do that at home, um, fix things. Um, it's a change of pace from the, the normal rigor of what I'm called to do in preparing a sermon or counseling someone or, or leading uh, on staff. But I have to restrain myself from doing as much as I would like to, uh, as much as my inclination would, because uh, doing that too much would cause me to neglect the primary ministries that God has given me uniquely as a pastor of the church. 
preaching, counseling, prayer, uh, leadership. It's not that I'm too important to wield a screwdriver. I take out the trash. I clean up behind myself. I, I help out whenever I can. It's, it's that I need to be faithful to the unique role God has given me and not neglect it. And, and while we're on the subject, could I add this as an aside to those of you who are uh, regulars and members of GRC? Whenever you're looking for somebody to do something, ask uh, somebody to help out, uh, take over a task, give you an answer. Whenever you can ask someone who is not a pastor or an elder or a deacon or deaconess, it is such a beautifully healthy thing for the church of Jesus Christ. It's not that you can't bother any of us, but it's that um, two things happen at one time. One very often, getting pulled into things causes us to neglect the primary responsibilities that God has given us in the church. And number two, if the, 80%, uh, if the 20% do 80% of the work, the 80% of the people on the sidelines aren't given an opportunity to jump into ministry, exercise their spiritual gifts, participate in what God is doing. And by asking someone perhaps you know isn't involved, very winsomely, not, without, not with a guilt trip, but would you, would you like an opportunity to help serve alongside me? I really need a few people to help me do this. Frank Martinez is leading the, the van ministry, right? Um, maybe you come up with, to Frank and say, hey, you know what? I, I could help out every other Sunday um, in the first service. To the extent that you can do that, the body of Christ is strengthened. And uh, leaders are enabled to focus on the task that God has given to us. What happens? Back to our story. When the poor are taken care of, when justice is maintained, equitable distribution, when word and deed ministry work hand in hand, verse 7 tells us, so the word of God spread, conversions multiplied rapidly, and very interestingly, a large number of priests came to faith. Now that's interesting. Why is that? In the Old Testament, priests served at the temple. Priests received the people's offerings for the operation of the temple, but also to enable them to care for the needs of the poor. And here in Acts chapter 6, we have to put the pieces together. We're not quite sure why, but I think it makes sense. As these priests see the radical generosity of the people of, of Christ, God uses that to get their attention and to help them realize what real priestly ministry looks like. We're going to get back to this idea uh, a little later. Well, verse, uh, chapter 6 then puts the focus on one particular man amongst the, the original deacons. His name is Stephen. And right away, he draws all kinds of opposition. People are after him. He gets himself arrested by the religious authorities, uh, and his answer to their accusations is a story. That's where we go secondly. The what, a biblical story. You know, people tend to have this idealistic view of the book of Acts. I've heard here at GRC, I've heard lots uh, in lots of other uh, contexts, Christians say, you know what, the problem with the church is this. We need to get back to the book of Acts. We need to get back to fundamentals. We need to do everything that the book of Acts describes under the apostles' leadership. And we got to get rid of everything that, that's not in the book of Acts. And if we did that, then, then we would see the results in the book of Acts. We would see God respond in the same kinds of ways. And some of that thinking is good. 
getting back to basics, right? Fundamentals, what's most important? But Acts describes in great detail something that is consistently missing in the modern church, GRC included. And that is the radical holiness of every Christ follower in the community. Radical holiness. Now, we have to define holiness in the right way. Holiness is not all about just doing the right things, acting a certain way, saying the right words, going through the motions. Holiness is certainly not looking down on other people who aren't doing the right things according to your definition. Biblical holiness is all about being set apart for God's purposes. Biblical holiness is about uh, being distinct, different from, contrasting with the values of a sinful world. And uh, another way to put it is holiness is not sin. Holiness is not death, not dysfunction, not uh, uh, decay. It's shalom, pursuing shalom, uh, imitating the character of God who is the epitome of holiness. No surprise then that holiness in the community of the early church meant that these believers' lives were rooted in faith in the resurrected Jesus because his resurrection defeated sin and death, defeated not holiness. And in light of this radical holiness, it should be less of a surprise to us that God would respond with disciplinary judgment on the deception of Ananias and Sapphira that Josh preached on two two, uh, weeks ago in in Acts chapter 5. Um, it wasn't about the money. It was about their integrity. It was about uh, the fact that they were acting just like the world, saying one thing, doing another, wanting to get credit for things that they didn't do. And God says, no, 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 no. That This period in infancy, in uh, incubation, if you will, is so tender for my uh, church, the bride of Christ, that I'm going to remove everything that is not representative of radical holiness. Ananias, Sapphira... If they were believers, they were brought home right away, not waiting for uh, old age. Why? Because God was protecting his church. And that holiness theme shows up here in Acts chapter 6 because the ultimate place of holiness, still standing at the time of Luke's writing of the book of Acts, was the temple in Jerusalem. This place, when the uh, witnesses are talking about this place, the Sanhedrin met in the outer temple courts. And they were talking about the temple itself. Well, that's, that's what the end of chapter 6 addresses. Stephen is accused by false witnesses of speaking against the temple. I actually think he was speaking against the temple. But the false witnesses are adding details that he didn't add. They're putting words into his mouth that, that are perhaps inflammatory that he didn't say. And the reason I think he actually was speaking against the temple is because um, he would have simply been echoing what Jesus said Back in John chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus said to his opponents at the time, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They thought he was talking about the whole temple structure. It took decades to build that. Jesus was talking about himself and his death and resurrection. So how does Stephen respond to these accusations? Have you ever been pulled over by a police officer? Start the recall, perhaps the shame walk. (laughs) My first time was 17 years old, driving the original Dodge Caravan 
uh, my parents with three friends in the back. We were heading to the Poconos uh, to go skiing. 12.30 a.m., late at night, I hit 76 miles an hour. In the rear view, I saw uh, lights approaching me, which was strange. I was naive at the time. And I saw E-C-I-L-O-P as they came in view, police, right away pulled over. And instinct told me, I hadn't rehearsed this. Nobody, no, parents had not prepared me for this moment. Instinct told me, be polite. Don't make any excuses. Yes, sir. I was going a little too fast, sir. I, I didn't realize it. I was going, you know, and no excuses, sir. Um, you put on that face, right? Like the six-year-old who knows he's been caught with a hand in the cookie jar, and there's no use wiping away the milk and crumbs that are on the chin, right? Just... Um, Go for the pure innocence, naivete route and hope that leniency is the result. If you give attitude, you're done. Don't we all know that? Right? You give attitude, no way, there's leniency. We all know that. Stephen apparently doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't go the um, no attitude route. And if he knows it, he doesn't care about it. And yet in contrast to a 17-year-old kid who did break the law, I got off by the way, Stephen's character is impeccable. This is the overflowing praise that Luke, the author, aims his way. First in verse 3, he's one of the original seven who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Verse 5, he's the first in the list, and he's the only one described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, he's again described as a man full of God's grace and power. When the opponents start after him in verse 10, they can't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And then just before the the high priest himself addresses him face to face, everyone sitting in the Sanhedrin saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's actually what I was after with the police officer, the face of an angel. Um, (laughs) I didn't succeed. I know you're surprised that I didn't succeed. Um, 25 years later, I still don't have it down. Um, I know that's not me. But this is what he says when he gets put on the stand by the high priest who asks him, are these charges true? Stephen tells a story, the biblical story, at least a chunk of it, starting in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. And his long and indirect answer to that Uh, accusation question is found in what he skips and more importantly in what he emphasizes in the biblical story. By the way, as we're talking about the biblical story, I hear this all the time. Somebody will uh, admit to me, Peter, when I open my Bible, I can't pay attention. I lose uh, my train of thought and I, I don't know how to benefit spiritually from reading my Bible. Can I offer you two thoughts? One is that you and I, and particularly you young folks, uh, uh, teens and preteens among us, you and I have um, uh, ended up spending way too much time in front of a screen. Our digital device, small and medium, as well as the big screen uh, in our living rooms. We have um, enabled media to train us to only tolerate small doses of information and to strongly prefer the visual type, especially the moving visual type, the video. We've lost the ability to think and um, patiently digest and to exercise 
a spiritual imagination. When I say spiritual imagination, I don't mean spiritually making things up, making pretend like little children do. What I mean by spiritual imagination is what we used to do when we'd open up a book on a a boring old summer day and enter into a story and imagine what these characters sounded like, looked like, what the scenery, uh, the setting, the, the, the building, the home looked like, the imagination of, of picturing what it will be like to stand in the presence of God, to walk the streets of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what I'm talking about. We've lost that ability because everything is fast food content. It's just readily accessible there for quick digestion and sometimes indigestion. We need to relearn how to patiently process. And secondly, more to the point of of Stephen telling a portion of the biblical story, if you take the time to learn and understand the one true story of the Bible, the, the overarching themes of what God is up to here on earth, from the beginning of time to the end when Jesus comes back, you'll better understand the details of wherever you happen to be reading on a given day. Stephen knew the biblical story, and he used it to answer the question. You want, a, you want an answer? You're all listening? Here it goes. He starts preaching. And interestingly, 90% of this long speech happens between Genesis 12 and the end of the next book, Exodus. And of course, he skips all kinds of important details like the Passover and the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then in verse 45, he hits the fast-forward button. And he jumps and intentionally ends his biblical story retelling by getting to the temple in Jerusalem, 1 Kings 6, for reference. He skips details because he's highlighting from biblical history the false worship of the people. Two examples he touches on. One, the Israelites rejected Moses as their prophet and deliverer, initially at least. They were in slavery in Egypt for 400 plus years. They didn't want Moses ruining things for them, making things worse. They didn't trust him at times. And then out in the wilderness, after the Passover, 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, they reject God because he's taking too long. They form a golden calf. They worship a false god in the desert, even after God has done all of that for them. And Stephen's point to the Sanhedrin, this religious council, is this when he lets them have it in verse 51. You're still doing it. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That's about the worst, nastiest thing you could call a religious leader, probably to this day. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised. You know, sometimes as a pastor uh, whose job is to use words, My mouth gets me into trouble. And perhaps more than you, I cringe at this sermonic train wreck about to happen. But just as we saw from the mouth of the Apostle Peter twice in his sermons early in Acts, instead of easing up, Stephen slams the accelerator. And in verse 52, he says, You betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the Messiah. And Stephen pays the ultimate price when this religious council turns into an angry mob, drags him outside of the holy place, and stones him to death. What's going on here? Besides him not getting that you don't give attitude 
in front of the authorities. What's going on here? There were four key symbols of Judaism. Ancient Judaism, as well as uh, modern Orthodox Judaism, I'd say. Temple, what we're talking about here. The law, or Torah, first five books of the Bible. Um, The Holy Land, the Promised Land. And ethnic identity as Jews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Touch any one of them, and you've gone too far. Denigrate it, dismiss it, diminish it, you're in big trouble. And the accusation in chapter 6, as we've seen, concerned the temple. It was sacred because it was the place where God would draw near to his people. Um, Sacrifice was required outside the temple itself, in the temple courts. It was a messy place with blood, dead animals, and parts, because these animals needed to pay the price of our sin so that sinful humanity could draw near to a holy God. And these were some of the God-ordained roles in the Old Testament. A prophet would speak to the people on behalf of God as a representative. The priest would speak to God on behalf of people as a representative. What Stephen sees here echoes what Jesus saw, that these religious leaders are using God on behalf of themselves. They're using religion. They're using their God-appointed roles in the temple for personal gain. And his biblical narrative, Stephen's, pointed at the priests, is basically this. You don't deserve to draw near to God, even though that's your primary job. That's your life's calling. And you don't know how to draw near to God, because God cannot be confined to a man-made house. God cannot be manipulated by man-made rules. God cannot be profited from by man-made restrictions to pay access to drawing near to him. And so here's the lesson then and still now. Access to God is not gained by special behaviors, just like every world religion claims. Read the right things, say the right words, do the right rituals, and you draw near to the God of your choice, whatever that world religion says. Access to God is not gained by special believers. It's not politically correct, but that's the case of every other world religion. It doesn't work. Secondly, access to God is not gained through a special place, even a church sanctuary where the gospel is preached. You know, the temple in Jerusalem would end up being destroyed by the Roman army in the year 70 AD. It was absolutely an historic and cultural loss, but it wasn't a spiritual loss. At least in terms of what God intended for the temple to represent and how he intended it to function for a stretch. Why do I say that? Because real and intimate access to God was finally and fully accomplished through the coming of the ultimate diakonos. That's where we go last, the who, the point of the story. Remember in chapter 6, we we read that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They they converted to faith in Christ. Interesting um, development. Also, especially miraculous development. Um, You you know, it'd be like all of the Uh, boards and um, executive leadership of the Fortune 500 and Hollywood coming to faith in Jesus Christ Um, because the cost of discipleship was so incredibly high. These were priests 
with a family lineage coming down from the tribe of Levi. Their whole identity was being at the temple, functioning, and they would have realized with new eyes of faith in Jesus that their jobs are no longer needed. (laughs) There's no point. The whole point of their whole family um, ancestry is no longer required. Thank you very much, God would say. You're done. Find your jobs. You know, um, and the fact that large numbers of them came to faith is especially miraculous because they saw the cost of faith and they still trusted in the Savior. What empowered this costly faith? What empowered the radical generosity and service and selfless giving that we see described over and over here in the book of Acts? It's one and the same. They all saw Jesus revealed as the great high priest. Um, Listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say in chapter 10 especially. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place... That was the inner sanctuary of the temple itself. We have confidence to enter that by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, a piece of temple furniture that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Temple imagery all over the place in fulfillment. This great high priest was also the ultimate diakonos, or servant. Why? Every other priest that had come before Jesus had come before the temple, taken this animal offered by the worshiper, and sacrificed that animal as a substitute for their sins. But this great high priest, as the ultimate servant, did not look for someone else to lay down on the altar. He went to his own altar at Calvary, and laid himself down as the ultimate servant. Priest and sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled it all. He was the perfect lamb of God, slain for sin. Here's, Jesus, here's Stephen's message again, paraphrased. You priests are supposed to provide access to God through prayer, through sacrifice. And now the ultimate priest has come, but you had him murdered. You priests um, have never kept the law that you claim to love so much and fiercely guard, and yet the righteous one whom you murdered kept it perfectly. If you reject Jesus as the righteous one, as the one who alone has provided access to the Father, intimate and eternal access, and you reject any chance of ever being forgiven, ever drawing near, which, by the way, is the point of your job to help others, worshipers, yourself draw near. If you reject Jesus, who is the true temple, no amount of temple ritual effort, sacrifice, no religiosity to make it generic from the temple in Jerusalem, no religiosity, no doing the right things, thinking the right way, saying the right words will ever enable you to draw near to God. It's empty. But Stephen, in contrast to his enemies, has full and unfiltered access to God. How do we know that? Because in the last moments of his life, he looks up and heaven is open and he sees the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son standing at the Father's right hand and he has access because he has placed his faith in Jesus, 
the perfect priest, and the ultimate diakonos, who has won that access through his life and death and resurrection. And notice that Stephen's last breath is spent praying, verse 59 and 60, to Jesus and for his enemies. Great power, inestimable power is unleashed when the church shines the light of Christ into darkness. Or if we put it in the words of our passage, great inestimable power is unleashed when the church acts like priests, speaking to God on behalf of others, sharing this access, intimate access to God that Jesus has provided. If we look back to church history, we could uh, even just look at two examples. Followers of Christ uh, were... Uh, those who led the way in the abolishment of slavery throughout the British Empire. Uh, some of you uh, read the books. A lot more of you read the, uh, watched the movie Amazing Grace, a story of Wilbur, Will, uh, William Wilberforce, a godly man. And a second example we might look to in church history is the great missionary movements of the 19th century that um, shaped the outlook and, and, and um, presence of global Christianity even today still have that kind of residual effect. Could it be, people of God, that in the years to come, the church of Jesus Christ, and in particular, Grace Redeemer Church, would rise up in unity through prayer, speaking to God on behalf of others, acting like priests in imitation of the great priest himself? Could it be that the church will, in a priestly way, intercede on behalf of those who are victims of human trafficking, those who are dying on a daily basis brutally for their faith in Jesus Christ, or any faith for that matter in terms of a human rights issue? Could it be that the church will be the only community that cares enough to speak up in defense of the most vulnerable, the lives of the unborn, as we have the privilege of doing through a partnership with Lighthouse Pregnancy Resource Center? Could it be that the church is the last hope for the least and the lost, including the fatherless, orphans, those who are stuck in the foster care system, and widows who are without hope unless the community of faith comes alongside them and cares for them? None of that is possible. Let me say that uh, positively. All of that and more is possible as we place our faith in the one who showed himself to be the ultimate, the last, the greatest high priest, and the perfect diakonos, the suffering servant who gave his life for sinners like us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we marvel at how you take darkness and expose it in light. We marvel how you take persecution and use it as a means of spreading the seed of the gospel throughout the world. We marvel how you will take a murderous man like Saul and turn him into your most effective evangelist ever and rename him Paul. We trust that you can do the same thing in our lives today. Use us, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.